All right, I'd like to welcome on to the show Paul Delaney, astronomer. Welcome to the show, Paul. It's always good to have you on because we talk about space and uh, it's not only the final frontier, it's pretty exciting what's going on and the fact that we can, you know, peer into space. I saw the other day um, that NASA sent back some uh, pretty interesting footage of the red planet. However, they have, I don't know if you've seen this piece of footage and I haven't told you I was going to talk about this with you, Paul, but what they did was <laughs> they took a... Uh, the orange out of the equation when it comes to the sky, because if you're standing on Mars, you just, well, first of all, you'd die because you couldn't breathe. But uh, everything would look orangey, including the sky, but they made it blue so that you could kind of get an idea of the topography because that's the way we interpret our planet. Have you seen that video? I did indeed. In fact, it was really quite stunning video. The very first thing I noticed was there was blue sky. I actually hadn't read as I was looking at the imagery what they had done. And then I went back and realized, oh, okay, that's why. Because blue skies on Mars, you know, it doesn't look like that normally. But it really was some stunning imagery of the terrain. And that, of course, was the aim of the exercise. Right. And that came back from the Perseverance, which we've talked about that rover several times on the program before. That's right. It's been running around the surface of Mars now for the better part of 10 months. And it's got its uh, sidekick there, Ingenuity, the little sort of rotor helicopter that is flying alongside. It's been a really good 10 months on Mars for Perseverance, Ingenuity, not to mention, you know, the Chinese rover and, of course, um, uh, Curiosity, which has been on the surface now for nine years. Lots of great data flowing back from the Red Planet. We're used to he seeing things from space. We're not used to hearing things from space. I thought this was really interesting. NASA released an audio track of one of Jupiter's moons. Um, tell us a little bit about this moon before I play the soundtrack of the moon, which sounds weird, and then we'll wrap our heads around exactly what we're hearing. <laughs> Sure. Ganymede is, in fact, the largest satellite in the solar system. It's it's well over 5,000 kilometers in diameter, bigger than, say, the planet Mercury, for example. A really interesting world. It has its own magnetic field. We think it has a subsurface uh, ocean layer or at least significant water layer. The more we find out about Ganymede, the more of a water world it becomes. So it's a really interesting place to go visit. And that's what Juno is doing at the moment. Why is it considered a moon? Is it considered a moon? Because is it as big as Saturn? Did Am I correct in saying that? No, it's not as big as Saturn. Uh, our moon, for example, is a little over 3,000 kilometers in diameter. Ganymede right. is a little over 5,000 kilometers in diameter. They call it a moon or a satellite because it's orbiting a planet. Anything that orbits a planet is a satellite. Okay. Um, here's the sound of that moon. Now, if you're thinking it sounds like R2-D2, you're not wrong. It does. I mean, that's the, that's the most relatable thing we could compare it to. But what exactly are we hearing? Because it wouldn't sound like that if you were passing it by. It, no, it would not. And that's an important point to underscore here. Uh, the process is called data sonification where NASA takes some data that it's picked up, in this case, at the radio end of the electromagnetic spectrum, and has shifted it into the audible area, that is to say, something that your ears could hear. So it certainly doesn't sound like that, but what the, uh, the, the changes in pitch and the changes in intensity of the sound, that is mimicking the variation that we are actually detecting in the radio frequencies. So it is not... Uh, sound that you could hear, but the variations that you are detecting are in fact real. And that tells us a lot about the environment through which the spacecraft is moving, the charged particle environment, the magnetic field environment of both Jupiter and Ganymede. So we can tease out the details 
of the environment and particularly of Ganymede by listening to this type of uh, rendering, if you will, of the radio signals. That's really interesting. So by hearing it, we can theorize what exactly is going on. But I guess it's beyond theorizing. You can actually pinpoint what's happening. You can, because when we go back and look at the actual frequencies that we are detecting it at, so not the the audible frequencies that we can hear, but when we actually look at the original data, that gives us the insight uh, that we want. But by moving it into the audio audio yeah audio area of the uh, spectrum so your ear can hear it you know it becomes more familiar to you and people pick up on nuances that they can't necessarily see in the data when it's just in radio frequency domain that's really interesting so let's talk about the fact that uh the international space station we've got people up there and they are going to celebrate the holidays up there together on the space station spacex launched christmas gifts and goodies and supplies to the international space station on tuesday that's pretty impressive when you think about the fact that here we are the 22nd so yesterday's the 21st they're figuring the christmas presents will uh, get there in time that's better than uh, some delivery services here on the planet We won't go there, will we? Uh, yeah, the, 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 the docking should be today. Uh, you know, SpaceX has had a fantastic year as far as launching vehicles is concerned. I think they've up to 26 or 27 launches this year. That's like one every two weeks. And this one, special delivery in time for Christmas Day. I mean, picture perfect. You couldn't ask for anything better if you were an astronaut on the ISS. Well, maybe a $10 billion telescope. It's set to launch. What is that going to look at? Apparently, we are we are part of this. Canada, I love it. You know, when it was all about the, uh, the this space shuttle, we were talking about the Canada arm, right? Uh, yep. Now, it's it's about the fact that we have, um, I guess, what have, we, what have we done? We've contributed well, to this $10 billion telescope, right? That's right. That's right. We've got two instruments on board, the fine guidance sensor and what we call the near-infrared uh, imager and slitless spectrograph. That's a fancy way of saying we've got an imager and a spectrograph that can uh, take images of objects, say exoplanets, but at the same time, analyze the chemical signatures of that uh, exoplanet, therefore determining what's in the atmosphere and things along those lines. Those two instruments uh, have given uh, Canada what we call guaranteed time on the James Webb Telescope, about 5% overall. And that's really significant. I mean, you know, the European Space Agency, as well as NASA, as well as Canada, those are the three principal players of the JWST. And this is going to be a remarkable instrument. It's been 30 years in the making, uh, and it's well over budget and well behind schedule. But we are now talking about a launch on Christmas Day, December 25. A lot of astronomers holding their breath for that launch, and then the ensuing 30 days going out to its final destination, what we call Lagrange Point 2. Okay, and so what is it going to, does it just float in space? (laughs) Basically, uh, it's not orbiting the Earth like the Hubble. It's orbiting the Sun, but it's at this special location where it keeps uh, uh, pace with Earth. So if you draw a line from the Sun through Earth, you intersect L2, and that's where JWST is going to be. It's there so that the Earth doesn't contaminate and uh, cause problems for the telescope. Out there, it can be chilled to literally almost the temperatures of the background of space. It's got a big heat shield in front of it to protect it from the sun so that it can really peer down in what we call the infrared area of the uh, spectrum and look back in time, look for exoplanets. It's it's going to revolutionize in many ways, many areas of astronomy, asking some very fundamental, well, answering, we hope, some mm-hmm. very fundamental questions. 
But how long will it take to answer those questions? Uh, Are we there yet, Paul? Yeah. Don't I remind you of a kid in the car? It will be a few. Yeah, it's going to be a few years. I mean, yeah, we will start observing with the telescope within six months. But like any level of astronomy, you'll pick up that data, you'll analyze that data, you'll want to recheck that data. You know, the first results we will see by Christmas of next year. But to answer all of the questions that are going to be asked, well, it's going to ask twice as many questions as it answers. That's what I call job security. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> it's going to be a wonderful five to 10 years worth of data from the JWST. I'm looking forward to uh, having you back on the show. Maybe we'll have to have a podcast. Thank you so much, Paul. You're welcome. Happy New Year. Same to you and Merry Christmas.